Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to me and to you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now standing there, were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water, that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we listen to these ancient scriptures, these stories of your work in the world, teach us what it means for our lives and for this world. We come to this moment with so many voices screaming at us, whether it is whatever news report we listen to, minute by minute, hour by hour, exhausted by the 40-second news cycle, endless, telling us all sorts of various information, so we're drowning in a sea of data. Or the chorus of arguments that take place immediately following among the people around us, or even those arguments within our own minds and hearts of what to do about it. We come to this moment with voices telling us to buy more, to achieve more, or if you can't, at least pretend that you do. Overextend yourself, project a strong image. And we're exhausted. We come to this moment joyful or hopeful, resilient, connected. We come to this moment alone, afraid, angry, holding a grudge against others that's eroding our own soul. We just come tired, exhausted, apathetic, cynical, however we find ourselves right now. Help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is created in your image and likeness, beautiful, with honor and glory 
unimaginable. And at the same time, we are fractured. We're broken. We're like a mosaic of a million pieces, not brilliantly reflecting the image that you've given us. And so we wander. We lose our way. We lose hope. But help us to see, however we find ourselves right now, that you see us in all our complexity and contradictions. And you know us. You love us more than we even love ourselves. And your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we simply ask now that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. We pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, partially because it takes place at a wedding, and I love weddings. One of my favorite parts of my calling as a pastor is I get to go to a lot of weddings. I've officiated, I'm not sure, dozens of dozens, potentially a hundred weddings at this point after being ordained for over a decade. And I've kind of, at this point, done almost every kind of wedding you can imagine. I've officiated a very simple, small wedding on a mountaintop with the bride and the groom and the witnesses and me. I've officiated multiple weddings in the Julia Morgan Ballroom in San Francisco, which is one of the most elaborate, beautiful, old money, you know. They told me when I was talking to the decorator at the rehearsal, because I like to chat, and she said, yeah, these... uh, these curtains actually just cost $250,000 to redo. And I was like, I'm trying to imagine this, this choice of like, you can buy a Ferrari 458 Italia or you can redo your curtains. And they chose to redo their curtain. People that make that choice often already have the Ferrari in the garage. I understand this. But it was one of those places. Beautiful. I've officiated a wedding where the groomsmen passed out in the middle of the service at this hot day at a winery. And I always tell the groomsmen especially, look, you are the prime candidate for passing out during this wedding, especially if you haven't eaten much, if you've had a little celebration before the wedding. I give them this whole pep talk of how to just remain vertical. And sure enough, this guy just did not take notes during the the class, and he failed the exam. But he he did not steal my thunder, more importantly, the bride or groom's thunder. In fact, I'll just tell you one more. In that Julia Morgan ballroom, one of these weddings, amazing, beautiful wedding. And the bride, as I was praying the final prayer, I could see her eyes begin to roll into the back of her head, and she was about to faint. She's about to go down. She's getting a little jello. And in the middle of the prayer, I rush around and catch her with her groom on the other side catching her, and we lower her lightly down to the floor. I came back up and said, ladies and gentlemen, the bride you know, has, has just fainted. She will be okay. If there's a doctor, would you please come forward? Everybody else, please remain seated. All of that happened. They got her some juice, got her some fresh air. And she comes to, and I'm standing at her feet. I still have the microphone on, especially the videography microphone. So this is captured for all posterity. And she goes, Pastor Matt, did I faint at my own wedding? I said, you did. She said, how did I fall? I said, gracefully. (laughs) She went on to dance the entire night away, and uh, that was all good. But I have never been to a wedding where they ran out of wine. I just haven't. 
And you can imagine here, it's the kind of the, it's the, the wedding party's responsibility to throw a good party and show hospitality to their guests. I mean, Florence and I are going to go to a wedding in February where the reception is at Cheesecake Factory, right? So we're not saying, like, it has to be $40,000 or $100,000, like, but whatever the situation, it's on the spouses to show some hospitality to their guests. Now, if that's true today, imagine how much it was back then. Furthermore, joy, or wine, is a cipher, is a symbol for joy, especially in that culture. I was explaining this to a friend yesterday. He goes, it still is today. I'm like, yes, it still is today. But imagine it without Netflix and airplanes that can take you to Hawaii and PS5 and all the things that you love to do. It's like, if you had some wine back then, that was going to be the high point of your day or your week or your month. In fact, there's a scripture that says there's wine to gladden the hearts of men. So I just want you to see, part of what this is first showing us is that this young couple is at their wedding and they've run out of wine, but really it's a cipher for the joy has run out. This is much deeper than someone needs to go to Trader Joe's and buy more two-buck chuck so we don't, you know, run out of wine here. The joy has run out. In fact, the joy where you should always find joy at a wedding is not there. Now we're talking real-world situation. You know, this week with the Omicron pandemic still spiking, I can't wait for it to finally start going down, 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 but it's not. And I had a similar experience to many of you, I'm sure, on one hand, throughout my pastoral counseling conversations, I'm hearing friends say, you know, this person has gotten sick and so I have to stay home for five days and be masked and do all of that, or I'm afraid that I'm going to get sick. So there's this fear, there's this frustration, there's this low-level depression. You know, maybe not clinically depressed, but just like feels like there's a weight, like a cloud, because you've been carrying a weight for so long. I was checking in on next door for this neighborhood, for my neighborhood yesterday, and that was the discussion. And you can always get huge, like, 400 comments if someone wants to talk about dogs or bike lanes on 30th Street. But this one was someone being very vulnerable and saying, I'm really having a hard time finding motivation, and I'm usually a pretty motivated person. And then it was 400 me too's. <laughs> But you know this because you experience it. The joy feels like it's running out. And so what we see this morning as we enter in this new sermon series on what Jesus reveals about God, and the, the whole theme of the series is what it looks like to come alive together. The first thing Jesus reveals is that he brings the joy that no experience in your life or mine can bring. Not merely happiness that is dependent on your circumstances, but a joy that is like an oak log burning at your core so that you can face heartache, you can face uncertainty, but you can do it from a place of hope, honesty, and resilience. Do you know what Jesus' first miracle was? It wasn't rising someone from the dead, although he did that later. It wasn't feeding 5,000 people, although he did that. His first miracle was providing good wine, the best wine at a wedding, was bringing joy to a place where it seemed like it was full of dead ends. 
his first miracle. Now, I realize someone say, oh, my gosh, miracles, great. This is where we have to sit here and listen to this pastor who has a master's degree. He should be a thinking person, and he's going to tell us that this almighty God suspended the rules of physics and has created something out of nothing. And let me just say, first of all, I hear you on that. But instead of me responding to you, Let's allow John Meyer, writer for the New York Times, who wrote this. He said, many treatments of Jesus get bogged down in a discussion of the possibility of miracles. Properly speaking, that is philosophical rather than a historical or even a theological problem. And here's the point. All that need be noted is that ancient Christian, Jewish, and pagan sources all agreed that Jesus did extraordinary things not easily explained by human means. While Jesus' disciples pointed to the Spirit of God as the source of his power, Jewish and pagan adversaries spoke of demonic or magical forces. It never occurred to any of the ancient polemicists to claim that nothing happened. So this is just a great window into the life of Jesus and what it looks like to be a thinking, rational human being in, you know, in this particular time and place to say, the one thing that no one says is that nothing happened that day. Everyone agrees that something happened. The question you and I have to ask is, why did it happen? How did it happen? And let me, spoiler alert, this wasn't even the most difficult miracle Jesus ever did. So start with Jesus. Start with his death and resurrection. You begin to say, if he is the son of God who can be risen from the dead, then of course he could turn water into wine. You work the problem that way. So merely an invitation for you friends, especially who are beginning or restarting an examination of the Christian faith. Start with Jesus. Start with his resurrection and work your way outward from there. And here we have what the Gospel of John calls his first sign, his first miracle. And all of these signs point to something greater. And this one is he is the Lord of the feasts who brings the joy. Now, I know some of you are also saying, joy, really? Christians and joy are not a description that you normally find in the same sentence. I don't know if you know this. Christians in the watching world don't necessarily have the reputation of being the joy bringers at the party, right? You go to a big party and they say, hey, here comes Matt. He's a pastor. You don't hear everyone go, hip, hip, hooray. But what if it was? Because that's the example Jesus sets. That when you show up because of your generosity because of your resiliency, because of your buoyancy, because of the way you connect to others. You don't have to be extroverted like me. You can be introverted like you. That's fine. But you connect on a way that is hopeful, approachable, gracious. What if this is a church that's known for its joy? That's the calling. So in the time we have, let's look at this idea that Jesus brings joy. Let's look at how he secures the joy and what it looks like to receive this joy. Okay? First, Jesus brings joy. Jesus brings the joy of the feast. We've already said this is distinguished from happiness, which can rise and fall based on the stock market or your mood or the things that are happening to you. Joy is deeper than contentment. Later, Jesus would say, I came that you may have life and life to the fullest. A different sort of life. And so wine was more than just the beverage that pairs with the good food. It was the joy of the feast. And scripture gives an honest look at life and says, sometimes the joy runs out. 
Do you notice how honest the Bible is with the realities of life? It does not just say believe more, trust more, hope more, and everything's going to work out for you and you'll get everything you ask for. And if you don't get everything you ask for, it's not God's fault, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. You might have run from dysfunctional narratives like that. That's not what scripture presents. It says you can be close to Jesus, you can be at the party, and still it feels like the joy is running out. That's where this couple finds themselves. On a funny note, I was just watching this bit last night by Louis C.K., the comedian, and he talks about how joy runs out. The way he communicates it is he says, you know, so I brought a puppy home for my family. You bring a puppy home for your family and you might as well say, hey everybody, here it is. I just brought you sadness in several years. Because this dog's either going to run away or we're going to outlive it. And one day we're going to cry because of this little dog. So here you go, sadness in advance. But what he's saying is joy runs out. We know that. This couple is experiencing it. And so there's not only the joy that's run out, but then there's this shame, especially in a shame-based culture. Some of you are more familiar than others where shame-based culture is you know, your status, your standing, your value in society. They would be ashamed. On their happiest day of their life, no joy. And Jesus does something about it. There's an irony here that Jesus says, Get the water from the purification jars. This is just water that would be used for ceremonial washing. We'll get into that later. Take it, dip it, bring it to the Lord of the feast, the architrichlino. This is the, that's the Greek word for it. I'm just showing you I paid attention in class. This is the person whose job it was to make sure that the feast was amazing. This is like if you watch Downton Abbey. This is Mr. Carson. Right? It's his job to make sure that everything goes well, and if it doesn't go well, it's his head. Take it to him. So first thing we learn here is that he has the name tag on that says Lord of the Feast, but he's not the Lord of the Feast. Jesus is the true Lord of the Feast. Some of you have been paying attention to a counterfeit Lord of the Feast that promises to feed you in one way or another, and it's left you thirsty and hungry. Jesus says, come to me. Jesus says, I long to bring the festival joy. Not just enough, but abundant joy. 150 gallons of good wine. Could you imagine? And he makes it overflow. One of my best friends, is uh, he owns this high-end wine company out of Napa. And I flew out there a couple months ago to celebrate the 20th anniversary of his business. He took us out to one of the fanciest restaurants in San Francisco. It was the first bona fide six-hour meal I've ever had, where each course was paired with its own wine. And one of the things about this particular friend is, you know, if you ever come to my home and there's a $50 bottle of wine on the table, I'm probably going to keep it close to me. <laughs> when you're at a table with this friend, the $50 bottle of wine comes around, you go, no thanks, because I know a $300 bottle of wine's coming. He's the friend who on a Tuesday night famously said, okay, gentlemen, there's a $300 bottle of wine on this table and a $3,000 bottle of wine on this table. I'm not going to tell you which one's which. Just enjoy them and tell me what you like. This friend is overflowing with good wine. That's a picture of Jesus at this party times a trillion. That He has no lack, no want. There's no question if he can provide. He's just going to let it flow.
Do you see how he could begin to heal the fear of, I don't have enough for you? During the volatile COVID season we're in, what's the pathway you take to deal with it? Do you stoically just grit yourself even harder, batten down the hatches, back order the at-home COVID tests, come what may, I'm going to be ready? Are you just cynical about the whole thing? It's just going to hit us all anyway, so we might as well let it. Are you apathetic about it? Just let it, just who cares? I'm so sick of this. Do you begin to see how knowing that he provides knowing that he sees your very questions, the places where you're getting tired, fed up, sick of it, confused, those are the very places where he moves toward. Or even all that aside, just what it's like to be a human being trafficking in this world, how do you deal with that nagging sense that you are not enough or that you don't have enough? And I'm not talking about you don't have enough to buy food or get braces for the kids or get around town. Like, then you actually don't have enough and the church wants to help you. But the majority of the people that are involved in this church and hearing this right now have enough and we still feel like we don't have enough. When Alexis de Tocqueville, the French philosopher and writer, visited this country in the 1800s, he said, never have I seen a people with so much that are so unhappy and feel like they have so little. How do you deal with that sense of not measuring up? Grasping for recognition. So now that that raise or that promotion at work is not only increased finances, which is nice, but it just finally tells you you're a winner. Those people who said you weren't going to amount to anything, they were wrong. Prove them wrong. I knew a guy I played basketball with in San Francisco. He had a tattoo on his shoulder that said, prove them wrong. I said, I never want to guard that guy. He's working out some stuff on the court that I just don't want to interact with. I'll talk to him in the pastor's you know, office. But we have that voice, prove them wrong. Or they were right. And it pushes you down. And yet here comes the Lord of the feast. It feels like the joy has gone out. And Jesus is the only one smiling. Why are you smiling? Because I know I can provide. Jesus secures the joy. Now, I need to give you the caveat. This does not mean that no matter what happens to you, you will smile through it, because sometimes you just don't. I was reading in preparation for this a book that I had first visited years ago. Get, can you imagine this conversation? It's called The Book of Joy. It's co-written by the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa, who just passed away. These two men who wrote a book of joy, but they didn't come from a position of, my life has always gone well, things have always been easy, and so I'm going to write this book on joy. You know, it's like Michael Jordan writing a book on how to be good at basketball. It's like, I, I'm good at basketball, you guys could do it too. If I could do it, anyone could do it. It's like, no, you have a supernatural talent. But the Dalai Lama has suffered through great tragedy and injustice, seeing his people dominated in Tibet as he lives his life in exile for decades. Archbishop Desmond Tutu living through apartheid, but not just living through it, walking with Nelson Mandela, in many ways being the heart and the conscience of a nation. And they wrote a book on joy. And there's this place where Archbishop Desmond Tutu says, 
Discovering more joy does not, I'm sorry to say, save us from the inevitability of hardship and heartbreak. In fact, we may cry more easily, but we will laugh more easily too. Perhaps we're just more alive. Yet as we discover more joy, we can face suffering in a way that ennobles rather than embitters. We have hardship without becoming hard. We have heartbreak without becoming broken. A new resiliency altogether. Whatever you're going through, you look at the Lord of the feast and he says, I will see you through this because I will be with you. In fact, in Jesus, you have the one who knows what it's like to go through hardship, who knows what it's like to be afraid, uncertain, confused, abandoned, who knows what it's like to be afraid even to the point of death. God who understands you. Or as the writer to the Hebrews said, a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. God gets you. He brings the joy, but he secures the joy. Why does he secure the joy? This is point two. Why does he secure the joy? The simple answer is because he loves you. And here's where we see it in this passage. Mary goes to Jesus and says there's no more wine. And Jesus has this response that seems very abrupt. Woman, what concern is that to you and me? Now, what's going on here? Woman, is he just being mean to his mom? I mean, this is the same, ostensibly, this is the son of God, Yahweh. Yahweh said, honor your father and mother. What's going on here with the abrupt response? Now, we're simply theorizing here. But I take myself to weddings that I officiate. And one of the things I love to do, as soon as the ceremony is over, if they have kind of cocktail hour, happy hour, before you sit down, I always just go and linger. I make myself available invariably, someone comes up and wants to talk about something deeper in their life. Because weddings and funerals bring up the deeper stuff in our lives. They bring up moments of vulnerability. And so I often will go and hang out and not be pushy or any, I'll just smile and say hi to people and hopefully receive a compliment or two and say thank you. But invariably, someone will come up and say, can I speak with you? Absolutely. Well, I don't, I don't want to lay it all on you right now. And I said, this is what I do for a living. I'm, I'm on the clock. I love this. This is why, why I wake up in the morning. And they'll go, well, being at a wedding always reminds me of, you know, my own life and wondering if I'll meet somebody. Wondering if I'll ever have a wedding like this or if I won't. What that person would be like. Or, I, you know, I, I come to this wedding and I realize I'm not the person I want to be yet in order to be like Those kind of deeper questions. And one of the categories is people are thinking about the prospect of their future wedding. Now here's the interesting thing. What if Jesus is watching this wedding and he's thinking about his own wedding but he's doing it in a way that you and I would never guess? Because on the side, as you know, every single scriptural account and every other account that we have, Jesus was never married. Um, you know, the Tom Hanks movies are great. The, the Dan Brown books are great. I've read them all. Terrible historical record. Okay, so just, just so you know. But what if he's thinking about his wedding in a way that you and I would never guess? And here's what I mean by that. The breadth of Scripture 
teaches us that God relates to us not just as a king relates to the subjects, not just as a shepherd relates to sheep, not even just as a father relates to the children, but as a husband relates to the, to the wife. What if Jesus is thinking about his connection to you and to me? Here's where I get that. Isaiah 62. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You know, when I officiate weddings, that moment when the, when the spouse comes down, the doors are closed, they start the bridal march or whatever music they're going to do, the doors open. And everyone's always looking that way. They should. I'm always looking back at the groom. When, he's, when, when they see their partner walk into that room radiant, and almost invariably there's tears, both for that person and for me, with delight. And what the scriptures teach you is that delight is how God looks at you. God is overcome with joy when God thinks about being with you forever, invites you into relationship with God. That's how I feel about you. And so if Jesus, the bridegroom, is thinking about his own wedding, I'll give you another place in scripture where it's adamantly highlighted in Revelation 21. When, I talk, when we come to this table and we, we look forward to another meal, that comes when Jesus has made all things new. Here's the scripture we don't always bring out. But in Revelation 21 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This picture of new creation, where God looks not only at you, but as the entire renewed world in union, intimacy, deep knowledge, connection. So if that's what Jesus is thinking about, that, if that's what drives him to bring the joy, simply because, short answer, he loves you. That's why. Well, then why is he troubled? Why is he troubled in this moment? And here's why. Because of how he secures the joy. He gives himself. See, the clue is when Jesus says, why is this any concern for you or me? My hour has not yet come. And in the Gospel of John, you could do a word search on Google. Hour, my hour, is always a code for his death on the cross. So, on one hand, it's kind of more awkward once you know that. Because he's saying, they're saying, they have no more wine. And he's saying, it's not my time to die. <laughs> what does one have to do with the other? He's noting there is a joy shortage. But it's not just local at that wedding. 
And it's not just superficial like they ran out of wine. It goes to the very core of creation. God created you and me to know who you are as a beloved child of God and to dance with delight in harmony with the other people around you and all of the created world. God created us for so much more and we've wandered, we've broken it, we've shattered it. Like giving a six-year-old the keys to a Ferrari, we've ran it into the wall and it doesn't function right anymore. And he's committed to putting it right. Jesus knows that he will enter in to the sorrow. He will enter into the pain, even to the point of death on a cross, and he will take it all upon himself to put an end to it. He will move toward us to bridge that gap between us and God. So like we said earlier, it's not about you finding God. God has already found you. And look what he does. Here's how he does it. He says, go to the ceremonial washing jars for purification that were filled with water. Now, in the Jewish purity system, there was an understanding that God is pure and clean and holy and radiant, and you were not. Okay? Now, I realize that falls flat today, right? Because in the Jewish purity system, it would say, you are unclean, you need to be cleansed. But today in our culture, we say, who are you to tell me I'm unclean? You don't get to decide who's clean and who's not clean, who's right and who's wrong, whose ethics are better than others. The truest thing about us is the reality we create for ourselves. The most important thing is that you agree with your values. That's what we say. And then I have conversation after conversation with so many of you in a land of sexual exp you know, expression and freedom, you feel more trapped than ever. I was listening to this great podcast by Brene Brown yesterday. She was interviewing the author of Atomic Habits. His last name is Clear. I forgot his first name. But they, these two like uber successful authors and their names are known and they speak around the world. They were talking about starting a new project, starting a new book, beginning a new venture, taking a risk, and the shame, she calls it the shame show, comes to town. You think you're really an author? You think you're really a writer? You're going to get up there and give that lecture. You're going to give that presentation. You're going to share that message. It doesn't matter that you've done it a hundred times. You're going to fail this time, and they'll see right through you. See, we want to believe that we can set our own standards, our own values, our own morals, our own ethics, and all of that. But in reality, you still have that nagging voice telling you you've blown it. Those jars... Those ceremonial washing jars represent everything we go to, to to quench that voice, to put out that fire, whether it's stacking up a career of achievements or stacking up a list of relationships or anything in between. The more networked you are, the better you look on the beach, the more followers you have on social media, whatever the case might be. And these things aren't bad in themselves but you make them the ultimate definition of your life and they will crumble. He says, I come to bring a joy that's much deeper than any of that. Now, how do you receive it? Two quick things as we close. All of us 
are invited to receive this joy in our lives right now. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. And that's where I think there's an opportunity in this pandemic. Especially for those of you who are so used to pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and just being self-sufficient, nothing wrong with that. But there's part of this that's kind of broken you and you go, I, I can't, I, no matter what, I, I can't control everything. I'm feeling out of control. Now you lament that, you grieve that, you mourn that, you respond scientifically, intelligently to all of that. But maybe that's an opportunity for you and me to say, I'm going to trust God with this moment of my life. I'm going to have to put my head down and focus more on my health or the health of family members. I'm going to have to put my head down and help my child navigate how to learn both in, you know, in class and online. I'm going to have to realize that no matter how much I'm putting my head down at work, that promotion is probably, probably not going to come as quickly as I thought it would because things are just stagnant right now. Whatever it might be. But God's in the middle of all of it. And so I could trust. I could take it one day at a time with hope, just asking, what is the next right indicated step? And that's exactly what it looks like to respond. Jesus you know, responds to Mary, and then Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And frankly, he tells them to do something they've never done before and doesn't make sense. Right? We're out of wine. We'll take the water jars and then bring them to the head store. What are you talking about? We're out of wine. So, Christian friends, they were operating on a leadership principle where they trusted Jesus as the leader so much they could respond, it doesn't make sense to me, but because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will. I remember hearing a, a talk 20 years ago, and this leader's like, the type of people I look for on my team are the type of people that can say, and he's like, B-Y-Y-S-S-I-W. I'm like, what? Because you say so, I will. Trust. You can trust him. What is the area of your life he's calling you to trust him and take a step, take an actual action step, simply because you trust him? The second way to respond is to believe, to receive, to accept that he actually loves you this much. This is the beginning of the Gospel of John. At the end of John's Gospel, he says, now Jesus did many more things than these, but these were written down so that you might come to trust and believe that he really is the Son of God. In other words, the reason John selected, he curated this story to tell you and me and so you can come to a trusting belief that Jesus really is who he said he is. And so maybe that's a step for you this week. As you consider coming to this table to make this story your story, to believe that actually he loves you this much, and to respond. Maybe it's to identify yourself as a Christian for the first time. Or to take a step toward baptism and join the baptism class that's coming up pretty soon here as you think about what it means to be officially adopted into the family of faith. But whatever it is, don't leave unchanged. Allow him to be the, jo the, the joy of the feast for you. Trust him. Follow him. 
We do that individually, we do that together, and then we become a great wedding feast of new creation in the midst of a hungry world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray that you'd fill us with your joy, especially now, especially in these times that feel heavier than ever. In any given day, there are those of us that are feeling the weight of the world in different ways, but this is different because it feels like the whole society is sustaining it simultaneously. So Lord, in the midst of this weight that plays itself out in 10,000 ways in each of our own stories, Lord, would you bring your joy? Would you help us to face heartbreak without being broken? To face hardship without becoming hardened? And instead, will you help us to see how you move toward us even now? Give us the grace to receive you and to extend that kind of renewing, joyful love wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.